Good morning, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. Uh, I'm Sarah Bay Jung of York University in Toronto, and I am joined by Harvey Young, as always, of Boston University. Good morning, Harvey. How are you? I'm doing well. It's, it's, a, it's a sunny but cold day here uh, in Boston, and I'm lamenting the loss of the Buffalo Bills. They just, uh, yesterday, we're recording this right after the uh, Bills, should have won but didn't win against the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, and as a diehard Buffalonian, I'm heartbroken. But it I'm was it was so exciting to see them go. Well, it was so exciting to see them go so far in the postseason after so many years. And uh, yes, uh, I am right there with you in 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 the in the pain and pathos of this of this Monday morning. Um, we are also now joined um, by two of our uh, regular uh, rotating co-hosts, uh, Leticia Ridley. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So glad to be here. And Jordan Ely. Good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, and they are both, you may know them from their co-created and co-hosted podcast, Daughters of Lorraine. Um, and I understand, Leticia, you have some exciting news to share that I, I did not know. Do you want to say more about your upcoming plans? Yes. So after, you know, I write it, finished writing my dissertation in a pandemic, <laughs> uh, I will be starting uh, at Santa Clara University in California as an assistant professor in their theater and dance department. So I'm really excited to join the folks over there Yay. and to meet my new students and just to get uh, the ball rolling on this professor life. <laughs> <laughs> congratulations and um, and congratulations to Santa Clara. Well, well, well done. Um, that's really uh, exciting news. Um, today on the podcast, um, we have three exciting topics, and of course, we'll finish up with our drafts. Um, first, we'll be talking about a, a subject that's on a lot of our minds, which is equity and inclusion in academic theater and performance studies. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of critiques of systemic racism in theater programs and demands for change. We'll talk about what programs are doing, uh, what we can and should be doing, um, and get some, some particular insights on, on where to go from here. We'll also follow up in our second segment on prior discussions regarding digital theater with particular attention this episode to social media performance, reflecting especially on Ratatouille and other forms of social media facilitated performance, uh, crowdsourced performance, what does this mean for the future of theater and performance practice, digital media more broadly, um, and what should uh, theater and performance studies training programs do in response to these. And finally, we read Race and Performance after repetition, edited by Soika Diggs-Colbert, Douglas A. Jones Jr., and Shane Vogel, and published in 2020 from Duke University Press. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, but before we get started, we'd like to begin with a uh, land acknowledgement. Uh, as always, I am recording from uh, downtown Toronto, uh, Takaranto, subject to Crown Treaty 13 and the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant with the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. Um, Jordan, do you want to share a uh, land acknowledgement from, from where you're at today? Yes, um, this is from the University of Maryland College Park. This a particular land acknowledgement was approved by the Piscataway elders, and um, I am happy to share it with you all today. Every community owes its existence and strength to the generations before them around the world who contributed their hopes, dreams, and energy into making the history that led to this moment. Some were brought here against their will, 
Some were drawn to migrate from their homes in hope of a better life, and some have lived on this land for more generations than can be counted. Truth and acknowledgement are critical in building mutual respect and connections across all barriers of heritage and difference. At the University of Maryland, we believe it is important to create dialogue to honor those that have been historically and systemically disenfranchised. So we acknowledge the truth that is often buried. We are on the ancestral lands of the Piscataway people, who are among the first in the Western Hemisphere. We are on indigenous land that was stolen from the Piscataway people by European colonists. We pay respects to the Piscataway elders and ancestors. Please take a moment to consider the many legacies of violence, displacement, migration, and settlement that bring us together here today. Thank you very much for that, and welcome again to you all. You know, one of the things I, I've continued to learn um, through the, the land acknowledgments, not only in terms of recounting history, but also um, what that means as a kind of uh, mindful practice, not just a rote recitation, um, is the various intersecting histories, um, mm -hmm. not just of indigenous peoples, um, but also as, as I think that acknowledgement really wonderfully highlights uh, migration. And so noting as well mm -hmm. the, the presence of, of African Canadians here in Toronto who have been part of the, since Toronto's first years of the settlement and yet have often been uh, systematically and systemically excluded from full participation in, in civic and, uh, and political life. And I think that one of the, the key lessons is that these acknowledgments are not just uh, paying respect to the past, but also calls to action in the present and uh, a commitment to work towards better futures for, for all of us. Um, to that end, and as we sort of take, take that up, I think it, it relates very clearly to our first topic, right, which is the, the question of equity and inclusion, and, and sometimes also shortened to equity, diversity, inclusion, or EDI. And um, I'm mindful of the recent article in American Theatre by Michael Bobbitt about um, the limits of certain gestures and, um, and how those are, in, in his equation, address more of a symptom than the underlying causes of the, of the problem. Um, I will also say that as an administrator, this is something that, you know, I'm grappling with, that my team is grappling with, um, and that is really, you know, facilitates a lot of really hard conversations. Um, and so, Harvey, I'm wondering if you can sort of say something about how, you know, from your perspective, how you are hearing these conversations, what actions you think are needed, and, and you know, what, what advice, if any, you might have for, for us as we, as a field, kind of take up these kind of long overdue questions and, and concerns and really grapple with the actions that are needed. Yeah, sure thing. If you, if you think about this summer, uh, what we've been dealing with uh, has been sort of twofold. First, you're, we're talking about the impact of COVID and a global pandemic, and then also uh, movements uh, related to uh, anti-racism and sort of long overdue uh, corrective uh, measures needed to sort of change everything from what we teach to what we produce and perform uh, on main stages. Uh, of course, none of this is, is new, right? So if you go back 25 years or nearly 25 years uh, to uh, August Wilson's The Ground in Which I Stand, right? So he stood 
you know, you know, you know at a conference in Princeton, New Jersey, in, in 1996, and and he, you know, what they thought, you know, the people were there, they thought they were celebrating him. They were like, hey, you know, we we've 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 done it. You know, the most famous playwright is the black man. Uh, so uh, our job is done. We are diverse. We are inclusive. And what August Wilson did was he shocked everyone by being like, no, 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 you don't understand uh, the things I've seen, the work that needs to be done. Uh, there needs to be an effort to support and champion the work of of, of black in particular uh, artists and playwrights and producers and directors and board members and more. Uh, and, and what I think, you know, and I think this is a helpful conversation, not only because of anti-racism movements in, in, in the summer, but also if you think about our later conversation around, uh, you know, sort of repetition uh, and the afterlives of, of these events. Uh, so of course you move forward, and, you, and for those of you who saw Kiara Alegria Hudi's um, uh, uh, her, her her keynote presentation at Athens 2018, which she then sort of uh, which she then published uh, in American theater, uh, and then more recently in, uh, in June 2020, the We See You um, ad that was taken out uh, by a number of prominent artists, including Lynn Manuel Miranda, uh, Lynn Nottage, and more. Uh, you know, it's it's a call to say that um, you know the the surface, the veneer of of diversity and inclusion just isn't holding. That when you sort of pull, go back, even at the highest levels of Broadway, uh, there's racism, there's discrimination, there's um, a discriminatory hiring practices, there's a lack of equity in terms of payment and 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 and, and what we're compensating people. You know, so that's what the call has been. The same things occurring within universities uh, to sort of take account for um, you know the practices that are occurring on the ground in terms of what we're choosing to produce, you know. So what I just want, to, what I've noticed, you know, to launch this conversation, is that you know there are a number of things that we're being called upon to do, both sort of within universities, but also uh, within universities, at lar- within academic and professional theater. And it's it's a commitment to c- cultural competency. So like land acknowledgments, it's it's changing our, our ideas of what the canon is and expanding that uh, to be truly inclusive. Um, it's to be mindful about working conditions and hiring practices. You know, to make sure that. That, you know, we're always, you know, sort of expanding the pipeline and and aggressively diversifying our population and not being tokenistic. Uh, it's being mindful of artistic and curatorial practices, right? So what are we producing and not relegating the work of BIPOC artists uh, and LGBTQ artists to the second stage in the lesser um, platforms and venues? And of course, it's also about transparency and accountability, right? So that means everything from, um, uh, you know, who your board members are, you know, to... Uh, how you're actually speaking out uh, and and responding to your efforts toward change, right? So those are things that I'm saying. Well, what are you saying where you are? For me, what I what I'm sort of thinking about as I hear you speak is. Uh, from my own vantage point as a you know current graduate student and how these conversations get taken up um, specifically uh, as a black graduate student um, in a department that is predominantly white um, are uh, we lost two faculty of color in the last three years um, and then we got one in um, but since I sort of started my program, these conversations, like you said, have been sort of circulating and we, the graduate students have been pushing for it. And I think about um, these push to sort of have diversity retreats or anti-racist retreats as sort of a solution towards addressing these these problems. But often I think what I see with those sort of practices is it's like we have this one day where we talk about these things and then everything else just sort of falls to the wayside. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about how it can be a more sustained uh, 
effort beyond just the one day or the two days or like, hey, this is when we're supposed to talk about diversity, um, equity and inclusion, right? What does it mean to sort of embed that as the center of your classroom? Um, I think about the many times as a graduate student where I felt um, I felt unsafe uh, because of equity and inclusion issues, right? What what can we do to sort of do the sort of mundane work of equity and inclusion that sort of gets, I think, obscured by the sort of larger big ticket items um, that like makes that people here make bigger impact um, for uh, these issues. Jordan, did you want to add to that? Yeah, um, I appreciate um, um, what Harvey and Leticia have brought up about that and you know I am also a black graduate student and I do find that even the idea of diversity equity inclusion um, what I appreciated so much about the we see white American theater letter is like they're not just saying this is an issue of EDI this is an issue of anti-blackness this is an issue of anti-indigeneity this is an issue of misogyny this is an issue of homophobia it's about like these sort of systemic Um, issues that are undergirding the actual theater industry in general. Um, And so I think in terms of academic theater about what, what programs can do, it's, it's, yeah, it's about money, right? It's about all of the uh, financial situations that I know it's hard also because a lot of, I feel like a lot of colleges and universities can say, you know, we're in a pandemic, we're trying our best, you know? And so like, trying to have these conversations while, you know, colleges and higher education is facing this sort of very economic, very real economic issues is um, can create that extra barrier to that. Um, But then at the same time, it's about, well, what better time (laughs) to restructure than now? Right. Like when I mean, as we 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 look at a lot of, um, you know, black studies, ethnic studies who are think who are always thinking about crisis and and what that means to be in crisis and it's like crisis is the time to really really lean in and um not in the Sheryl Sandberg way but in the like to really go into that that um that wound or that tear and and like try to think about what you can do beyond that um and so you know at this when you when you take all these issues and um, they're kind of coalescing right now to make it seem like it's impossible, but I think the work of theater and performance is like we've always dreamed about what's impossible. Literally, theater creates things out of the impossible all of the time. So, what makes this particular crisis any different? I think that's a a, a really powerful reminder of not just our obligation right now, but also of the of the unique possibilities within theater and performance. Um, I, I, I have two questions. One kind of goes back to something you said, Leticia, about, um, you know, feeling unsafe and, and the other Jordan's comment on restructuring. Uh, I'm curious if, if you have ideas, suggestions, and, and maybe Harvey, if you have things that you've done also, um, uh, ways to, to directly address that. Uh, and I ask because this is something that you know we're hearing from a lot of different areas, um, and and there is a kind of question of, of of safety and concern and inclusion and and making sure that people feel like they can bring their full selves to participation. 
Um, and yet, of course, we also know that within any space, there's a diversity of perspectives, there's a diversity of experience, um, and, and that diversity includes ignorance. And that's part of what the university is designed to address. So how do we, or, or from your perspective, what are some ideas or suggestions or, or, or thoughts on how do we balance that within within the space of particularly a, a creative space and a theatrical space, but but also just like a, a pedagogical classroom space. Yeah, I think for me, I never enter a classroom thinking that I uh, that it needs to be a safe space. I think the classroom specifically is a is a is a place where people can get it wrong, where we can try things out. Um, and I and that's what I love about being in a classroom, right? That there's this growth that we can sort of see happen. For me, I think something that can be sort of centered in the classroom is not trying to sort of bulldozer over when we have issues in the classroom, right, to sit in the moment and to allow us um, as a classroom community to sort of unpack what's happening um, and then think and, and know that we don't necessarily have to get to an end point, right? Like, I think a lot of these conversations, a lot of the things that happen in the classroom that causes rupture um, is people feeling like they need to solve the thing right then and there and thinking that it is a well once we talk about it it's it's done we have our solution no actually this work is long term and continuous Um, so I think if we sort of shift our mindset of like we need to solve these issues and actually we need to um, commit daily to the practice of diversity, equity, inclusion, and to, uh, and this is not just in the classroom, this is also in the rehearsal room, then I think we can get to a better, we can get to a better place, right? And sometimes it's saying, I don't know, or actually I was unaware of that. And that's okay. Um, Because again, the classroom is that unique position, I think, where we don't have to get everything wrong. Like it's literally, we're here to sort of learn and to throw things on the wall and to see if the spaghetti sticks or not, and to sort of be in dialogue with each other. I love the spaghetti because I'm always telling my students, this sounds like spaghetti, Um, (laughs) but it's okay. Uh, Sometimes the spaghetti works. Um, But I I totally um, agree with you, Leticia, about the um, about the the safe space, like why I prefer the brave space to that of where it's like it's okay to get things wrong. And um, it's like, you know, my advisor uses the term like, you know, it's okay if you put your foot in your mouth, we will all gently help you remove that foot. Just <laughs> gently. Um, and and that's it's so much better to be in a in a classroom environment where you can experiment and um and get like Letizia said, get things wrong versus one where you're either just ignoring issues or you are you know so scared to say anything that nothing ever gets to the to any sort of point where anything's getting solved but when we think about like tangible things it's about what are we producing right like um a lot of of academic theater is based on like what's the educational benefit of producing this particular play versus this particular play and it's like what are we saying when you know, our entire season is um, by white playwrights or male playwrights. And, um, you know, there's only a few roles that were actually designed for people of color. I'm not an actor anymore, but when I was acting in college, um, I never played a black person on stage. Like, 
I'm a black person, right? So I was, you know, black on stage, but there was no character that I ever played that was meant to be a black person. And what does that do, you know, when you're constantly playing these roles where you're infusing your own cultural competency into that character, but it's not one that was made for you in mind in the first place? Um, What does that do to the actors of color that, um, you know, that, take that college experience and then they go into the professional industry and it's the exact same thing happening there. Um, What would happen if you begin with your programming in college about like what kind of plays you're exposing your students to? What's the educational benefit of okay, you know, we're going to actually produce more than the one black play or more than the one Asian American play Um, and and see what that does to your students and expanding their horizons of what they, you know, what they know to be um, theater and performance. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, a lot of this comes down to individual agency. Uh, and I think that that's where you can be particularly effective, right? So, you know, for the person teaching a class, it's what do you choose to include in your syllabus? You know, what, you know, uh, viewings are you requiring? Um, like you can chip away, you know, at at the prejudice and the conservatism uh, in the field. Um, really, one class at a time. You can, you, you can literally do that. What I've noticed can be difficult is when it scales up, right? It, it, you know, how do you get people together to overhaul a curriculum? <laughs> you know, for mm-hmm. you know, for a major or or season planning is, is, is a great example of this, right? When it's not an, artist, an individual artistic director, but it's it's a committee of people to get them on board. Uh, and I think that that is the part where I've noticed a lot of resistance, you know, we, you know, because people will talk about, you know, the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, they'll, they'll, you know, sort of talk about how important access is. Uh, but then when it comes down to actually making the choices around, you know, what should be um, in part of a curriculum, which should you produce, which should be on the main stage, that's when resistance pops in. Um, you know, so what advice do you have, you know, for the people who, kind of double speak, right? Who are like, you know, DEI matters, but then in terms of their actions, you know, consist- consistently are the obstacle. Well, I'll just say that as a, you know, as someone who is white and, you know, somewhat gender non-conforming and, and sort of visibly queer for most of my life, um, there's, you know, I think that it's always really important for, um, for communities to talk to ourselves. And I think that this is an area where there has to be leadership and direction coming from white educators and white theater makers to um, to our fellow white people about what it, what real uh, you know inclusion and and equity looks like and means. And you know, I think one of the challenges there is it's um, it's about giving up authority. It's about giving up power. It's about actively decentering. Um, you know, we know from any number of, of repeated psychological studies that what feels diverse to one group of people, you know, um, if you've got a room, you know, with 20 white people and two black people enter, the white people will think that that is a diverse room. And, um, and that's not about individuals. That's not about, uh, you know, bad people or good people. That's about, you know, how we are conditioned to look at the world and what are our expectations of, uh, of what that means. So I think it's also really important to start 
setting some external measures because if we just rely on individuals um, you know sense of this our sense is skewed and we have to really acknowledge that 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 internal compass for many of us um, uh, and again I'm talking to sort of you know majority power majority folks um, is really is really skewed and so setting some and and getting expertise from outside that to really help us set some metrics and some guidelines and some you know, and I would say the way that we're starting to think about this um, in, in my faculty is what are our benchmarks of success? Like, how, what are we trying to do in a very concrete way? Um, and that's going to be different for every program, but also then how do we, you know, kind of set those benchmarks, work towards them and hold ourselves accountable for for that progress? Because I, I completely, um, you know, take Leticia's point about that this is a process and and a practice and a, and it has to be reiterative right it can't just be a kind of you know big moment we all make the statements and then we kind of subside back into the 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 habits of the past i i really i hear that and i think i think it's important to figure out how we can sustain that momentum going forward yeah i would also just like to add and this might be a hot take um but jordan and i talk about this a lot like what does it mean you know even like within the sort of name of like anti-racism like what does it mean to sort of center that around um oftentimes white people right in in their sort of learning learning practices what does it mean if we're actually trying to take care of the marginalized student in the classroom right even if there are that one or two students right how does that sort of shift our way that we're approaching these issues instead of like only sort of again recentering sort of whiteness even as we're trying to sort of dismantle it so i also wonder if a way to sort of get to um to get out of our pattern of no longer you know having these conversations arise and then fall away and then it comes back up again if if that can perhaps shift us to a place of action that actually gets us out of just thinking about uh diversity equity inclusion as sort of like uh, something that we have to like teach oftentimes white folks um, to to learn how to care um, but what about that what about that uh, you know three black students in your class that um, have never had an experience in the classroom where they felt like they were centered and or they were taken care of yeah I'll, I'll add that I think that you know sometimes I think we hear because of the you know we see you ads and uh, the petitions uh, that that circulate, you know, we hear uh, the the frustration and the call to expand and diversify, you know. But what I've noticed is that you know there's uh, an equally resistant force <laughs> that's out there, um, you know, in which there's a real um, uh, hostility toward uh, you know these efforts toward inclusion. Or and by hostility, it's not you know refusing to move forward. It's uh, accepting temporary measures, but not embracing structural change, mm-hmm. and, and and I think that that accounts for, you know, the the return of some of these of these conversations again and again, where you think you're moving forward, and you're like, but but how is it that, you know, 25 years ago, August Wilson, peak of the profession, is lamenting, you know, what's going on, and then 25 years later, you have people who are in your mind like owning broadway saying oh no if this is the peak it's pretty bleak right that this view is not very good uh, and 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 that's the thing that i think is is the hard part right is to uh 
own uh, and understand and, pr- and try to find ways to have conversations with those board members who just don't care about diversity and inclusion, right? The audience members who, you know, will choose not to see the play by a BIPOC, a, a, by a BIPOC artist. Um, you know, the unions, right, that are, you know, because of whatever their histories are and traditions and, and discriminatory practices for membership are not allowing, um, you know, BIPOC members in. Uh, you know, and I think that that's the part that is, is, is the real limiting factor, and we need to find some way to crack that. Well, sadly, we probably won't do it on the podcast today, but I really appreciate the, the conversation and, and the instruction. And, and I actually, you know, I think that this is something that we'll, you know, we'll be continuing to talk about and come back to, um, you know, throughout the, the field and, and the profession. And so I, I really thank you all very much for the, the comments and perspectives on this. And we'll look forward to future conversations uh, uh, and advice going forward. Um, it, it occurs to me that that the question of inclusion actually is one that links our our first topic and our second topic um, because one of the things that we have seen is that a number of uh, social movements have generated um, and drawn incredible energy and momentum from circulation across social media. Um, and that now we're seeing, uh, I would say, a kind of new era of social media performance that is radically inclusive in terms of its ability to reach you know, almost every part of the globe, um, any number of, of user-generated content, the radical sort of flattening of of access. Um, and, and one of the more interesting examples of this was the, the sort of massive undertaking of Ratatouille, the TikTok <laughs> musical, um, and, and, you know, and not disconnected from, from some of the questions that we're talking about in terms of representation and who got to be a part of that and how that project came into, into being. And so um, I'm just wondering, you know, Leticia, how do you see this you know, did you see Ratatouille? Did you participate in Ratatouille? Like, what's, what is this phenomenon for you? And, and what do you see as the, the future of, of TikTok theater, for example? Yeah, I did see Ratatouille on a whim. I was just like, I'm not doing anything else and I miss theater. So let's see what this is about. Um, I am not on TikTok, but I knew that there was energy behind u- utilizing the app Uh as sort of a creating mechanism, specifically as it relates to musical theater. So I know that Ratatouille came out of this uh, young woman writing a song and being like, Ratatouille would make a great musical. And then other people seeing that and being like, oh, I actually want to sort of add on to it um, with choreography, with other songs, with some dialogue, things like that. And I think what's really actually really uh, inspiring and cool about it is it's really sort of like a grassroots global community theater piece in a way that sort of decenters sort of like creative genius in a way right so what does it mean that we are all um, as a sort of community as a TikTok community putting energy and power beside creating like this one thing where none of us can take you know solo ownership over it right and and what does that do for us when we're sort of thinking about theater as a practice and I think also what it what it shifts is we stop thinking about the outcome or like the product and we think more about the process of theater making as a a whole so I'm actually really excited about this turn to you utilizing social media as a site in which uh, folks are connecting with people all over the world in different places Um, but I'm also sort of heeding the call of 
accessibility that I think sometimes gets wrapped up in these conversations that we think, well, you know, it's digital, so therefore it's accessible. Um, But I wonder for folks who are, um, you know, hearing impaired, how do they experience a Ratatouille, right? and, you know, we see with this new app called Clubhouse, which if you are an iPhone user, you can actually have. Um, but if you are Android, I'm sorry, maybe next time. Um, <laughs> it's actually an app that's still in beta uh, and it's primarily an audio app. So um, I got an invitation because I was a lucky one. Um, and uh, what I actually started observing was there is a really ripe community of fans of musical theater, but also creators. So what actually what is actually happening on the app is that there's all these sort of clubhouse productions of musicals. So it started with the Lion King. It's the, uh, the dream girls is going to be in black history month. Uh, then they're doing the whiz, then they're doing rent. So it's like all these people that literally are creating, not creating, but restaging, reviving musicals. Um, based on the audio. Um, And I think what's really interesting about that is that again, me as an observer on the app, not singing, um, not, you know, I'm not gonna sing for you on the podcast because (laughs) I don't wanna, I don't want you to like take out your earphones real quickly. Um, But what what I actually, what I actually see, see with this sort of process is that I was able to like watch all the auditions so when they were auditioning for these musicals, I could listen and have my favorites and then go to Twitter and have dialogue with other people about like, oh, this is a great singer. Oh, they're not singing the song and telling the story at the same time. That interesting enough, I think, creates a buy-in to musical theater and specifically black people are uh, the one that's sort of innovating Clubhouse as an app to utilize it for something that it wasn't even intended to be utilized for. Um, so I'm actually really excited about uh, these these turns in social media-based apps and us- utilizing it for theater. But um, I'm also sort of wary of of the issues that can arise um, as well from it. Yeah, I think something interesting about digital theater or like the uses of the TikTok musical or Clubhouse app, um, one of the big sort of like um, arguments against things like recording musicals and making them available is like, well, that's going to like, people aren't going to go see it, right? They're not going to go see these musicals. And it's like, I mean... I'm going to tell you right now, I've watched Hamilton on Disney Plus so many times, but if you think that when Broadway doesn't, like, reopens again, I'm not going to buy another ticket to go see it, then you're 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 just not paying attention <laughs> to what musical theater fans do. Like, it's not like I watch Beyonce's, you know, concerts on YouTube, and then I'm like, oh, can't go see her. Like, <laughs> no, <laughs> that's good. If anything, I'm like... I need to go see Beyonce. Um, and so I wonder if if folks are going to like listen to these Clubhouse productions and it's going to bring more theater to people who may not have ever experienced watching a musical before. Like people who, you know, are like, you know what? I didn't even know Dreamgirls was a stage musical before, you know, this happened. So what would that mean if if Dreamgirls was, you know, to be revived on Broadway and then folks go see it because they experienced it on the Clubhouse app and they want to just experience it for themselves, right? Or or even the TikTok musical where it's like, wow, if musical theater is like this, you know, I might actually go and see it. Um, and I know there also, you know, there's also circulating around... Um, from the new Netflix show Bridgerton, there's like a 
people creating music. Like, what if Bridgerton was a musical and now, like, they're creating songs for that? And so I'm also curious about this as a use of, like, theater fan fiction. Um, like, <laughs> you know, people who write, like, Harry Potter fan fiction and stuff like that, right? Like, this kind of use of musical, the form of the musical to be this, like, fanfic place for 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 work in the theater. Um, somebody get to work on that edited anthology. Uh, <laughs> um, I, 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 but, think, I think yeah. four or five of those projects just sprang into being while, while we've been sitting here, right? So I mean, I can, yeah. I can like hear them popping up in the background of, you know, you know, uh, dissertation yeah. feeds. Yeah, and it's like, I also am, because I, uh, you know, I'm a, a dramaturg and I'm very curious about the role of dramaturgy in these productions because I mean, dramaturgy gets kind of a bad rep sometimes of like, oh, I remember, if y'all remember Smash from back in the day, um, that whole arc about the dramaturg, it's like, oh, I can't believe you think I need a dramaturg. A dramaturg, I don't need a dramaturg. Oh, and it's like, that's not what dramaturgy is, but I digress, it's a different episode. Um, And I'm just curious about the usage of what would a a grassroots sort of divide, from Leticia's description, it sounds like, the Ratatouzical um, was a more devised kind of musical theater piece. And I would love to think about the process of theater making is that it's a slow process a lot of times. Like, musicals take years. I mean, you look at something like Hadestown, right? Like, Anae Mitchell wrote that over a decade ago, right? And it just got produced on Broadway a few years back. Um, or even Hamilton took, like, what, five years? Leticia's the Hamilton expert. But, like, it took, like, five years or something like that, right? And so, um, but then you have the TikTok musical. It was a matter of months, maybe? Like, l- way less than a year that for it to be produced. And I know this probably, you know, would be considered a workshop production. Um, but, like, I, I do wonder about the how that will affect the theater-making process. Because some... And, you know, since Leticia shared her hot take, you know, another hot take I have is like, I, I always get curious about the use of social media and something like Twitter for academia, because sometimes it's about like, how fast can I have this take versus like academia is all about the peer review process and the submission. And like, you have some an article you wrote two years ago that's, <laughs> that's still getting like revisions and comments and notes and your book takes years and years and all of these other things. Um, I do wonder if the usage of not just, you know, TikTok and and Clubhouse, but even like Zoom theater and all these virtual programming, how that will actually shape the process of making theater. Because the thing that I love so much about theater is how slow it is and how, um, how like, it's not like you put something in and you get it out immediately. Like it's about you could be working on a script for years and years and have so many developmental workshops and then it goes to Broadway and you know all of these other things right um well, I so think I that's been one of the concerns is. right is the and the the worries about um the displacement of 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 social media um and and the way it will displace and or distort um theater production mm-hmm. um you know, uh, other folks have argued for these things being in, in conversation and, and kind of in an ecosystem together and feeding back um, 
uh, to one another. Um, your your comment, Jordan, also made me remember the the interview with Lin Manuel Miranda in Variety from last December, right, where he talked about the reception of of theater being really contingent in some ways upon its circulation in in media. So he gave mm -hmm. you know the film Rent, for example, as extending the life of the Broadway musical and mm -hmm. the idea that people aren't aren't going to simply write off a show um, or, you know, be content with something that's only available, you know, if you've got a couple of hundred bucks to spend on a Broadway ticket. Um, and But all of the things that you're saying about time and investment and uh, development, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like, as we think about that in an educational context, like what... Mm -hmm. You know, it, it almost makes me think of, you know, to, to rip off uh, the, the book title, right? It's like teaching fast and slow, right? Like, how do you, mm -hmm. how do you think about theater in a kind of, you know, the fast hot take, both in creation and study, but also build in that, that patience and that, mm -hmm. that, uh, that willingness to devote the kind of, you know, laborious time and energy to developing something that doesn't necessarily you know, yield an outcome in, the, in, a, in a quick moment or in a way that's suitable for, for social media. Harvey, do you, as you think about this, like from an educational standpoint, like what, like, does this shape training? Does it change training? Does it require new kinds of training? What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? It's, it's, it's kind of old school, uh, but with new technology, right? So if you think about it in terms of the um, early theater programs that uh, created reviews, like original reviews, you know, that you get everyone together uh, and you have six months, nine months to create a two-hour, three-hour uh, sort of pageant, essentially, with original music, with original dialogue, mm -hmm. uh, that sort of thing. So it seems similar to me. You know, so Northwestern University uh, has for, uh, I don't know, maybe 50 years or so had, uh, and they still have this thing called WAMU, which is the students gather, they create an original musical, they, they compose, uh, and they, uh, it, 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 they, they launch each year a new musical. Uh, and it's a team effort, it's a group effort, and it's a way of understanding sort of the rigors of the production process, but it's also a, a collaborative approach, right? And I think that uh, this sort of fan fiction um, uh, perspective, which I think is genius. <laughs> so Jordan, thank you so much. Someone, someone needs to write that book, someone write that article, seriously. Uh, and you're seeing it more and more, and I think that maybe that's part of the shift, you know, with contemporary theater, you know, like Lauren Gunderson's work is essentially fan fiction, mm -hmm. right? And, and she's the most produced uh, American playwright. And I think you can sort of see the same thing occurring uh, with, with musical theater currently. Uh, the question I have is what's gonna happen when, well, not when, we now know you can monetize it, right? So how does you know, the sheer amount of revenue and cash that can come in from these collaborations then lead to inequitable practices, right? You know, and make it less of a democratic initiative? I was thinking about that. I was like, did the, did anyone get paid? I know it was money raised for the actors fund. I think that's the process that was made clear to viewers. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't, I don't know if we have the information, if um, any of the creators on TikTok were given some sort of compensation for that. I know on Clubhouse in particular, 
Um, there is no exchanging of money, but something that is coming up is rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's going to happen when people, like <laughs> these creators of these musicals, hear that they're being staged on these apps. And like, you know, uh, they do have these things where uh, like people put their cash app in their bio and you can like send their mo- send the money if you want to. Um, but I think the issue of money will be an interesting uh, barrier towards uh, these social media performances. There's a couple of different um, ways of thinking about this. Like one is compensation, one is individual IP. Um, the other interesting thing with Ratatouille was the fact that they got permission from Disney to run it um, as a mm-hmm. uh, as a as a temporary thing. Um, but there's also these. I mean, you know, we can that goes everywhere from like the kind of you know relatively small quick projects to massive hybrid productions, right? So, I mean, you know, Ratatouzical, uh, the the most recent stats I've seen had over 200 million views um, and raised over a million dollars for the Actors Fund, all all on $5 um, uh, tickets. Um, But then you look at like the sort of global success and, and sort of kind of phenomenon of the, you know, Korean pop music group, BTS, um, and their virtual performances and, you know, Map of the Soul 1, I think generated almost a billion um, paid views. I think it was like something like 993 million views um, from 191 different regions of the world. So, I mean, and and that was all, and, you know, the, the AR and VR. So, I mean, there's a number of different, like, ways of thinking through the social aspect of, of this media. But also the the way that pro- you know intellectual property rights are getting uh, played out. I will say the other interesting stat on this is that um, according to at least one recent marketing survey, um, there was a huge, as we might expect, um, increase in the uh, percentage of survey recipients who reported having watched and consumed live performance or a, a kind of theater or live performance through an online venue from you know, really in like the high teens to low twenties just a few years ago to almost 50% um, of the survey respondents. And a good chunk of those, um, uh, 48%, it was the first time that they had watched theater in an electronic medium. So I, I do think that there's also a shift in viewership. Now, whether that shift goes back when when things reopen or whether it, it, it kind of continues in parallel, um, or you continue to see kind of intersections between, I mean, because Ratatouille, of course, is a movie, you know, adapted as a, as a musical with a kind of stage and theatrical sensibility crafted on social media and, and, and run that way. And so, again, you know, you're going to see a lot of uh, migrations, it seems to me, and, and, and blending. That'll be particularly interesting given that all of the union conversations around online theater have been really changing in light of the pandemic, right? So, so mm-hmm. you know, equity and sat, I mean, there's been a whole kind of willingness to rethink and whether some of those changes are permanent, I think it's gonna be a really interesting, uh, uh, just like the legal context of all of this um, mm-hmm. over the next several years is gonna be really interesting to, to follow. Yeah, can I add one more thing? Please. About, I think this phenomenon is that um, specifically as it relates to the Ratatouille musical, when I was watching it, something that actually really bothered me about the production was that uh, all the black folks that were a part of it were rats. Um, 
And I was interested in that casting choice. Again, I don't know how the casting unfolded for something like this, but I was curious about like in this sort of fantastical world, in this sort of digital media, a way that sort of blackness is still relegated to sort of like the bottom <laughs> of the chain of great being as uh, Susan Laurie Parks might say. Um, and what that actually, how we're thinking about these digital mediums and it, its place for marginalized folks in it and imagination that uh, in particular black folks are allowed. Like what does it mean that we've seen Titus Burgess and Wayne Brady um, as rats the entire time um, and there was no other sort of representation of blackness outside of like being attached to uh, these these rats. Mm. And the whole reason like social media is popular is usually because of the usage by black people. So black Twitter, for example, put Twitter on the map, right? Like in the early 2010s, once, you know, I think it was like scandal and the live tweeting and black folks usage of it like made Twitter a thing, right? So then what does it mean then that we have this big grassroots musical that like you said, still has this reinforced this idea, even if it was Titus Burgess who called them up and was like, I want to be, you know, I want to be cast in this particular role. But then what does that mean that all of the rats were cast as black people? And I think Adam Lambert might have been one, too. So then we have this other marginalized person, right, who is who is still who is also a rat. Right. So like all of the queer and the black and the brown folks are, are rats. And then we have, you know, so I, I I see your point, Leticia, where it's like, yeah, we have this very creative project, but then we still have this weird reinforcement of of these um, of the stereotypes, caricatures, like uh, anti-blackness that we've seen. And back to our conversation about EDI, right? Like it's so it's still it's maybe implicit, explicit, you know, what have you, but it's still being reinforced in these very public ways. Wait, but that's, I'm just, I'm sorry, I was, I was just looking, uh, but Andre de Shields is in this uh, as, as the critic. Yes, yes, that, that is a good point. Um, he does come in at the end, um, and I think it was like, you know, he comes in the credit for, for 30 seconds or whatever. Um, but yeah, that is a good point that there is, Andre de Shields is the critic at the end of it. Um, I guess, I guess my sort of concern with it is that, um, we don't get that until the, until the end of the musical. Right. So like, I think we're, we're sort of trained, uh, trained in a way to sort of see blackness and, and relate sort of these black, uh, men to, a certain narrative that that could potentially also be exploded by Andre DeShield's presence at the end of it. Um, but I'm just, I'm just wary of like that choice. Like, I mean, that's um, a good point, especially and, and, and you think about the reading strategy of plays, right? That usually the first 15 minutes gives you a frame of how to read the rest of the play. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the racial logic of Ratatouille the musical, you know, gets gets framed for you, you know, in that in the in, in those first uh, in the first part of it. Right. Mm. Well, and, you, and we can't look at this outside of other forms of representation, particularly from Disney, right? In which we, we and, and so it's not just our orientation to this particular performance, but, but all the Disney uh, narratives and, and forms that we have consumed and, and, and in the larger context, right? Which um, 
you know, it, it seems to me speaks not only to our first topic, but also gestures towards our third, right, which is how things get repeated and reinscribed and reperformed, and who represents these different um, moments and, and perspectives um, and characters. And, and so I'm thinking now of, you know, as we transition to the book, uh, Race and Performance Af- After Repetition, I mean, some of the, the, you know, really important insights from a number of these um, articles is how race um, functions not only as a representative category and as a visible marker in in theater and performance, but also how it itself gets taken up um, as a form of reenactment and and what it means to repeat in a, in the theatrical performance and even performative context. And so, um, Jordan, I'm just wondering, you know, uh, you know, um, as you as you read this book, as you sort of think through. You know, where do you see the the important connections, and and you know what what was your kind of response to the, to the book as a whole? Yeah, I am. Um, um, I was so struck by the book, in particular, giving us um, fitting into this genealogy of what performance is, right? So we have these very different definitions across our fields. <laughs> uh, genealogy, you know, we have the Schechner, we have the Joe Roach's uh, definition, we have uh, Peggy Phelan, we have, you know, so it's like, now we're getting this, you know, kind of new way of thinking about performance as, um, I believe they, uh, um, Vogel, Colbert, and um, Jones said behaved restoration, right? And so um, it was just interesting to me that we're we're still continuing to rethink and, and reorient ourselves to what even this thing called performance is. Um, and I also really um, am curious about the the focus on care, right? And and the the focus on community and what does that mean to have these community performances? I felt that the the link between race and performance and repetition was about this idea of how communities perform and how communities care for one another through these sort of performances um, um, with each other and um, and what that then how does that make us you know, move from these sort of individualized understandings of what performance is. So, right, so we have a Judith Butler who's thinking about gender performativity, and that can be sort of concentrated in a sort of individual understanding of how particular people have been performing these other, their genders, right? But then, what does that then mean to have this kind of community space of performance as we see um, when they introduce, you know, Simone Lee's sort of art art installations, for example, um, or uh, um, Joshua Takano Chambers Letson introduces the artist who's laying in the street, and we have black folks coming and asking her, "Are you okay?" Right, and them being the group that's that's performing this care for um, this black female artist, um, and so I think th- that's what I'm I'm most interested in is how this makes us rethink. Um, what it means to have a, a group performing together. I, I, I think that makes a, a, a ton of sense and, and is really something that gets taken up in, in any number of different um, of, of the essays, both mm-hmm. both when it both in its presence, right? So when there is active gestures towards care, um, not only materially or you know in terms of direct interactions, but also in terms of the the idea of care underlying a cultural imaginary, um, but also in its absence, 
right? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of, you know, um, uh, Catherine Young's critique of, of Shuffle Along um, uh, and what really happened and, and the, the taking away of resources in that context and, and also the ways in which absence of, of care and, and direct concern. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering if, if, if someone wants to comment on um, on how this might align with questions of presence and absence, right? Because it also seems to me that, you know, that, that a lot of the arguments here really point towards um, uh, one of the critiques of something like Ratatouille or social media performance, which is that real theater or the, the meaning of theater, the importance of theater is when we're all physically in a room together, where we have a shared co-presence, where bodies are kind of aligned and that in some ways that is the mechanism of, of care, right? Our attention, our, um, even, you know, if you sort of think about the certain kinds of theatrical setups, our devotion, um, and our investment and support um, uh, of the at least psychic, right? Perhaps of the of the people performing. Um, you know, how do you how how does this figure into other contexts of care? Can we can we achieve some of that? In does it does it require co presence? I mean, is is some of what's mm-hmm. being argued here a, a, a you know? I mean, there's there's a few kind of overt references to this, but are there? You know, how do you see that in terms of supporting larger meanings of the sociality of theater? I think you're on to something. I guess I'm just sitting here thinking about it. And I'm thinking about uh, the Tavia Nyong'o um, essay in the collection where he's talking about seeing uh, Brandon Jacob Jenkins and Octoroon um, and talking about being uh a black person watching that play um and i think what he sort of what he sort of addresses in that is like how presence still can have an existence of absence Mm. so he's in a theater surrounded by majority white audience members watching an octoroon um and people are where there's like red face and black face and yellow face like happening on stage and still feeling this sort of absence in the theater, even being surrounded by a whole bunch of a whole bunch of bodies, right? And I think what that gets us to sort of think about, and I think what part of the collection is trying to do is is getting us to sort of think about uh, repetition, not at some not as something that is merely or exploding repetition from its attachment to violence only when it's when it's concerned with marginalized subjects hmm. and and yeah. I think this turn to sort of uh, attention and care gets us to think alongside repetition as something that is also happening right so like Tavia Nyong'o talks about um, his relationship to the actors uh, the black actors on stage enacting these um, and that being some sort of uh, co-presence um, even as they're sort of divided by the spectator uh, actor uh, dynamic so I so I wonder if uh, if if the, and they say this right like their their project may not be to be like repetition no more we don't need it it was fun while it lasted <laughs> um, but but rather to sort of think about repetition as something and something else as alongside repetition mm. yeah I, I think that's what I thought was interesting about um this 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 edited collection you know in that you know going into it you know at least at the at the gate uh, there's a sense that um you know they're looking to sort of rethink uh you sort of reconsider how one 
uh, thinks about uh, repetition. And to be honest, I was just like, is that really necessary? <laughs> you know, it's like, because I don't know anyone who theorizes repetition that, that theorizes it in, in terms of sameness, right? Uh, in mm-hmm. fact, people are quite clear to talk about repetition with a difference or the not not or, or similarity uh, or slippage, right? You know, so I think that uh, the capacity for the very yeah, the capacity that allows for variability uh, within repetition, which is kind of the heart of this book, uh, already exists within extant scholarship. But what I found to be the novel move was actually to link um, the sense of rethinking repetition uh, in the context of of the afterlife and afterlives mm-hmm. indexed by blackness, right? And and that's where I thought, um, you know, this is where they're doing a real service uh, to our field uh, and and pushing the conversation so that. Um, you know, maybe it, it encourages us, encourages us to think about um, you know how presence and co-presence lives relative, relative to the afterlife, right? And afterlife not in terms of dead and living, but in terms of the resonances of performance. Um, and I think this is clear in in Josh uh, Chambers Letson's uh, sort of chapter, right, where you're looking at you know a a performance piece where a person. Perf- pretends to be unconscious is that the case right um, mm-hmm. you know, b- but with eyes open if I remember correctly uh, and 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 how does the stillness of the body uh, but also its availability to be engaged with like you could literally talk with the performer uh, sort of complicate notions of 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 life and 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 or and, and non-life um, presence and, and and absence subjectivity and objectivity so I thought it was really helpful yeah, and I think I, I was also really compelled by uh, Joshua Chambers Letson's essay. Um, I was really moved by it. I think what real what I was really struck by was this dynamic of like the scene and not seen. And perhaps it's because I'm working through uh, something similar in sort of my own dissertation. But I'm also sort of I, I was also sort of compelled by um, what I would read as sort of like Afro pessimism, uh, being being wary of this notion of repetition, right? Because of sort of this repetition of violence that is constantly enacted on on black folks, um, and that Joshua Chambers Letson is like yes, but also sort of there's this repetition, sort of the call to sort of like check in and and to take care um, of uh, this this black woman who is 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 laying in on the street right but simultaneously as she does so right there's also all the people that repeatedly walk past her um, and it's not just in this performance but right like how that trains us to like not look at the homeless person or uh someone who is who is in distress often black folks um and that there is a way that we're sort of trained into or into like not caring or not seeing something even though it's so visibly interrupting even us walking yeah and i think that there's something um that is happening in this collection about about the usage of performance in particular right so i think that a lot of um fields outside of performance look at performance as only through sort of the Phelan definition of it, of like the it's ephemerality, right? And so it cannot possibly be this sort of liberatory project or anything like that because it's ephemeral. It's not real. You know, it doesn't doesn't have a lasting or sustained impact. And so, you know, from our field's inception to this kind of uh, collection now is always about making that case for its sustainability and for its ability to... um, to enact those um, those repetitions, right? That, that iterative, um, you know, 
undoing that it's that performance is constantly doing. And so I um, was sh- I'm, I'm constantly struck about this collection in sort of conversation with the field writ large about the ontology of performance and what it does, you know, what it does for um, what it does for, you know, for us making a case, I guess, for what performance studies does really well. Um, and which is thinking about futurity, possibility, you know, going back again to that EDI conversation, it's like, that's what theater and performance is doing, right? We are considering, we're always thinking about what what's next. <laughs> what's What can you do next? What is like, what can we make? Um, and, and, and I think having that conversation about re- repetition, um, like you said, Harvey, you know, about it's not about doing things exactly the same. Right. It's not about restoration, but it's about or just restoration. It's about this kind of like um, enactment of something of a something else of an otherwise or a futurity um, using what we have in the present or the now, um, which I, I found really fascinating. It's so interesting that that as I listen to you, Jordan, thinking about uh, what what Phelan thought she was doing with that definition, which precisely was about liberation and mm-hmm. and sort of um, the the potential of performance to operate outside of commodity capitalism, and mm-hmm. and then how how that notion got taken up and and held in a particular way, and and you know has been worked through the field over you know since since publication of that book, and then you know I'm 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 reminded of. Um, you know the passage that that um, Chambers Letson comes to, kind of at the end of at, towards the end of his piece, where he talks about um, uh, uh, what does he say? He says uh, by engaging performance's unique claim on the, uh, upon the present, and then parenthetically, a claim I assert without affirming or denying the pe- the Phelanian <laughs> aphorism that performance's only life is in the present. So I think like okay, so now we've gotten to a point where like I can neither confirm nor deny the ephemerality <laughs> of performance. <laughs> Um, but it ties in a lot of what he's talking about elsewhere, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, for me, the kind of core idea from the from the book is where he talks about, you know, Jose Esteban Munoz's um, utopia um, mm-hmm. as not a place that one gets to, but a critical imaginary through which one critiques and survives the damaging sociogenic forces of the past and the seemingly insurmountable insufficiencies of the present. But this is only possible when utopia activates the powerful and creative sociogenic powers of the now. So this is precisely what you're talking about, Jordan. But I think, you know, whether it was intended this way or not has particular salience in the context of pandemic and COVID, mm-hmm. right? And this idea that we are, and and the sort of, the the twin challenges of how do we teach and make and work and sustain theater through the unbelievable, um, even impossible challenges of the current situation, theaters shut down, theater workers struggling, um, insufficient support in in all kinds of different systems, um, and and the legacies of uh, of oppression and exclusion um, and anti-black and anti-indigenous racism um, as being those forces of the past with the seemingly insurmountable uh, challenges of the present. 
um, and the and the what is he called the insur- insurmountable insufficiencies of the present that we don't have what we need in order to deal with it. I mean, this goes back to I think something you said right at the beginning. Jordan about, you know, institutions saying like, oh, but we have budget problems and oh, we can't really take up this question and oh, we've got all these other things going on. Um, but then to kind of bring that together in this like work of utopia as a as a critical practice towards, you know, what can we do right now? What can we take up and how can and which I find, you know, for myself enormously inspiring and uh, mm-hmm. and, and kind of I mean, it feels like this is exactly the book that we need right now. Yeah, I'm reminded of of uh, Tina Camp's notion of of black feminist futurity and what she describes it as the uh, a performance of a future that hasn't happened yet but must right like the urgent sort of performance of that is like that that um, that that being you know the immediacy of this is like we have to have this happen and what does that mean to then take that and and have a sense of you know what do we say in in theater raise the stakes right we gotta the stakes are so freaking high i can't even imagine them being any higher than they are right now and so what does that then mean that we have our department or our programming or our rehearsal rooms right raising those stakes and um and and just going ahead and and performing that future because if we don't do that right then we're always going to be stuck in again that repetition where it's like problem you know we talk about the problem problem doesn't go away just gets pushed to the wayside (laughs) and outrage you know like then it's just that cycle i saw this diagram about that it's like this cycle of of outrage that happens and and what does that then mean that we just break that cycle and we 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 see we we notice the repetition that's happening and then we work alongside that to then you know have some sort of corrective um um to that and so i i agree that this book is sort of instructive in not just theoretically right considering what repetition is but you know practically for our uh, for the future of theater and for the future of theater um of educational theater you know what does that then mean to to take these theories and put them into real praxis yeah so 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 one thing that i've noticed uh just in terms of this book and then also um thinking about a previous conversation that we've had on this podcast um you know with uh, uh munoz's um the sense of brown um you know, edited by tavi nyongo and uh, uh joshua chambers letson right is that i feel like what we're witnessing right now is a real shift um it's, it's a generational shift uh, in terms of generational shift to the top tier of leadership, right, um, within performance studies. And I think that what we're seeing here is um, a shift in performance studies scholarship to attend more specifically uh, to the experience of race, uh, to be more attuned uh, to the conversations and issues related to gender. Uh, and, you know, it's an, there's an eagerness to move beyond an idea of the founding few um, uh, individuals within that particular discipline. And, 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 and that is something that I think is really important. And you can look at uh, the, the larger body of work of Suika Dix-Colbert and Doug Jones and uh, Shane Vogel, as well as you know, the, the stellar kind of cast of authors within this table of contents to see how the discipline is changing. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's inspiring, actually, where we are right now within the field of performance studies. 
There is so much more that we could say about about this book and, and in fact, on all of uh, the topics that we've had today, but but we are rapidly coming to the, to the end of our allotted time. Um, I did want to um, uh, thank you all, but before we, you know, head off, um, uh, close with our drafts, so things that you're thinking about, things that you're working on, um, uh, ideas that you have. Harvey, what's your what's on your mind? What's your draft for this time? Yeah, so on my mind right now, I have a stack of books in my office, uh, you know, some serving on the ATHA uh, Outstanding Book Award Committee, so they're, 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 they're coming in. And oh, thank you, thank you for of, that. I've, that is a I, that is a courageous task to under to undertake. <laughs> I have not read all of them yet, so you know, in a, in, a, in a few months, I'll have this sort of great sense of where we are, at, you know, as within theater and performance studies. But what I find really impressive, just at the level of receiving these books, uh, is the is in the midst of a pandemic and the budget cuts that have occurred, university presses really committing to scholarship at a high level uh, and making sure that they're sort of paying even the postage uh, to. Uh, get these books out to, you know, to make sure that they're seen, they're read, they're uh, reviewed, um, and they're evaluated. So I just wanted to just in my draft to sort of send a shout out to um, you know university presses at Iowa, Rutgers, Northwestern, University of Chicago, Cornell, University of Nevada, you know, who have thus far submitted uh, books. You know, and I encourage um, if we talk about sort of expressions of care, I encourage authors, you know, who are interested in pursuing publications with university presses to really, you know, take a second look um, at those presses. Thank you so much, Harvey. Uh, Leticia? Yes, so my draft today, um, I will say that I am in a state of grief. Um, and as I come to the end of my uh, doctorate um, and I get the DR in front of my name, <laughs> Um, I am thinking about all the people who contributed to the journey of where I am. And uh, sadly, we lost uh, someone in TDPS uh, just a few days ago. Um, and this was a person who I, uh, this is the first person that I talked to when I came into the master's program at University of Maryland College Park. So I just wanna use my draft to sort of just give thanks um, to Sandy Jackson and to just let her know that I am appreciative of uh, her pouring into me. Um, she's an administrator. Um, and I think oftentimes we sometimes overlook, uh, you know, those folks who are actually in the trenches allowing us to sort of do the things that we need that we need to get done in our, you know, academic heady <laughs> place. Um, so um, I just want to sort of send condolences to her family and just thank Sandy for um, all that she has poured into me. Thank you so much for that. And, and I'm so sorry for your and, and everyone's loss uh, at UMD. That's really um, that's really sad to hear. Um, uh, I will just share very briefly uh, um, uh, a note of thanks to um, my kind of ongoing social community of my virtual Fridays with um, uh, the CUNY grad um, folks and um, particularly they're bringing to my attention the sea shanties phenomenon um, on TikTok, which was part of my draft before it blew up in The Guardian and other um, uh, uh, media networks. But if you have not, if you are one of the four people who has not yet taken advantage of, of listening to the many iterations of harmonizing to the Wellerman online, I highly recommend it. It can be an incredibly uplifting um, and and there's something really interesting about the phenomenon 
phenomenon of the sea shanty um, as being a p kind of parallel to our current pandemics, right? Where we're all kind of sitting in these isolated boats, reaching out, waiting for, you know, the Wellerman, AKA, you know, Amazon to deliver, uh, you know, our goods, you know, to, to our homes and, and sort of making light and, and finding, uh, using art to find connections while we're so separate and, and some of us feeling quite adrift in, in among all of the challenges. Um, and then we'll conclude. So shout out to them and thanks. And then concluding with you, Jordan, what's your what's your final draft for this week? Yes, um, I second Leticia and all of support staff across the universities um, and how they have sustained um, us throughout this pandemic and even before the pandemic, right? And shortly after. Um, and in the spirit of community building, um, shout out to our trivia team. Um, Leticia and I are part of a trivia team um, that we, we met every Wednesday at the Rams Head in Laurel, Maryland. But since the pandemic, we've continued that virtual tradition and we've created games for each other. So that's included Virtual Survivor. That has included musical theater trivia. That has included um, all of, you know. And they also were doing things like um, listening to Leticia's practice teaching demonstration for her, you know, interview with Santa Clara and um, has just always been so supportive throughout this PhD journey. And I'm preparing for comprehensive exams right now. And so um, they're just always there to cheer. They, they know nothing about what we are doing and they are just so supportive of what's going on um, in these in the PhD program. So uh, shout out to that virtual community because it has really been a, a, a joy to just know that every Thursday night we're going to meet and, and play some games and talk through. <laughs> Well, thank you all very much for that, and and thanks for your time today. This is this is a, a little micro community that I always enjoy connecting with. Um, and to everyone listening, thank you for your continued support and enthusiasm and sustenance of the podcast. We'll look forward to coming to you again in the next month. And until then, I hope everyone stays healthy and safe and strong through these times. Many thanks to all of you, Harvey, Jordan, Leticia. Thanks so much for being here. On Tap is produced with the support of the Performing Arts Department of Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. Our associate producer is Carly Kessler. Our intro music is by Septahelix, and our outro music is by Gabriel Kahane. You can learn more about the podcast at our website, ontappod.com, contact us at our email, hosts at ontappod.com, and follow us on Twitter, at ontappodcast. 